Welcome again to Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18. I'm Charlie Walters. It's a safe bet that anybody watching this show has seen a movie in a movie theater. Even in the days of uh, streaming services taking off, uh, almost everybody of any age has seen at least one movie in a theater, even if you're very young. But I also think it's a safe bet that most people who go to a movie in a theater have no idea how that movie ended up in the theater. Why that movie and not another? Why does this one play for a week and this one plays for one night? And so on. So joining me today is Josh Gray, who's Director of Creative Programming at the Dreamland here on Nantucket, and he will try to explain how this process goes. Josh, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. And before we get going, full disclosure, I'm on the Board of Directors of the Dreamland, and you and I together are the co-programmers of Film for Thought every Wednesday night year-round at the Dreamland. Yes. So rather than have a dry description of, of what goes on in general, why don't we pick a particular movie and you can tell us the process from soup to nuts. So my thought is Avatar The Way of Water. When did you first know that that was going to be available to theaters? Sure. Um, so studios make it known what's coming out in the next few years. So we kind of have things on our radar, especially when we're planning budgets and things like that. We look at the year ahead and see what sort of titles are coming out. Um, for those that don't know, Disney is the... Um, you know, the gorilla in the, in the room, uh, and they uh, kind of dictate the industry. So um, the, it's, uh, it's an ongoing relationship. Um, when you play one Disney movie, you're pretty much, um, uh, you're, you're compelled to play essentially every Disney movie. Disney is known to be very stringent with their rules, and, and uh, the Dreamland, like any movie theater, is known to studios as an exhibitor. So their rules for exhibitors are very, like I said, stringent, and they, there's a lot of requirements that come with playing their movies. Uh, one of those requirements is what's called a um, clean designation or a clean screen. And that means when you get a movie like Avatar, they're going to tell you that you can only play that title on a certain screen for many, many weeks, and you can't play another title alongside it. Uh, for each calendar day you're open, uh, a screen must be designated and dedicated to that particular title. So um, when we knew Avatar was coming up, we um, worked with a booker who's based in Boston, and he books, I think, roughly 25 exhibitors um, in the Northeast. And um, so he communicates with Disney directly, and then um, and, you know the, he's the go-between between, between uh, Dreamland and the studios. So you don't communicate directly with Dreamland with Dreamlight, with Disney. Um, is that true for any movie theater of any size in the country or just for the smaller ones? It is true. Um, you know, I can't speak for the, the massive chains like AMC. Um, they probably have a special department that deals with them because their programming is dictated nationwide. It's not just per yeah. theater. They may have certain titles that are more popular regionally. Um, that may play in smaller theaters in, in a multiplex like that. Um, but for the most part, um, those big companies are just buying um, pictures to play in all their theaters, and they probably get a much better rate than an independent um, theater. Now, in the case of Avatar, The Way of Water, first of all, when did it come out? Uh, and when did you uh, sign up for however many showings you wanted to have? Or sure. however many they told you you were going right, to have? Right, right. So um, Avatar came out, I believe, on December 16th this year, and um, we put tickets on sale roughly a month before that, 
Um, because we were not a 3D-enabled um, theater, we were actually only allowed to play it on one screen. That's how much James Cameron really wanted people to experience the have the 3D experience. So for theaters that aren't geared to have a 3D experience, um, that was a sort of a drawback. We, we probably lost people um, coming to see it at the Dreamland because they were interested in seeing it, having that 3D experience. So they're, to pick up on what you were yes. saying a moment ago, they're dictating the number of weeks you could show that movie at the Dreamland, yes. which in this case was? Uh, five weeks, and then that's not always the final word, though. We ended up having to play it clean for six weeks. Um, so it, it becomes very prohibitive um, for other titles when uh, you only have two screens. Now, did they tell you which of the two screens you had to show it on? Um, they do, uh, generally speaking, because they don't get into the nitty-gritty of each exhibitor, but they say your largest screen. So after a few weeks, um, you know, I'm sure they're not as stringent with that, but for the first couple of weeks, we did have to play it exclusively in our main theater, and anything else we were playing was subject to be played in the smaller studio theater. Would they get to the point of telling you how many times a day you could show it? Um, they do um, stop short of that outside of making sure you have an evening showing, a, a prime time uh, showing, um, just because they know that, especially post-pandemic, a lot of movie theaters are understaffed and things like that. Um, you know, even the Dreamland, which is now back open six days a week um, for a couple years, um, once we'd reopened, um, we were only open four to five days a week, and we just kept scaling up. Um, so they, of course, have to take that in consideration. They're not supplying you know staff for us or anything like that so they have to accept our open days um but uh yes the, the days that we are open they are very attuned to what's being played where and do they check on this and if so how do they do that they do they just go on our website and they see what screen the movie's playing on that day and they just make sure um nothing else is playing on the same screen the same day do they? Do you know that they do that? I mean, obviously they can do it, but they. How do they prove they've done that? Um, from time to time, I'll get a phone call from our booker, and they'll say Disney has called and wants to know why this looks like this. And you know, I always am ready with a good explanation. Um, but they do, uh, and we're dealing at Disney not with high level management. We're dealing with people who are middle management, and they deal with a large number of theaters. And so while they do, that person is checking websites to make sure everyone's following the rules. Um, you know, I'm sure they have hundreds of, each person probably has a hundred theaters, you know, that they're, they're in charge of. And ticket prices, obviously the ticket price is dictated in part by how much you have to pay to get it. Mm -hmm. But does, not to pick on Disney, but does Disney or Universal or anybody, do they tell you what to charge? No. Um, so we charge the ticket price that our market can afford. Um, you know, a, a small movie theater in the Midwest is probably less expensive to go to a, a theater than it is in the Northeast. Um, but what they do and what all um, studios do is charge a percentage of the ticket price. So Disney is probably the highest at probably around 65% of every dollar goes back wow. to Disney. Um, and that can go down to as low as 35% for, for a different studio. Now, when Disney takes 65% and Dreamland keeps 35 but you're paying for the staff, so on and so forth, out of that 35%. Right, right. Now, they're also, out of their 65 they're paying God right. knows what, but still, it's... Uh, 
Right. That's that's quite a chunk they're taking. It is, and and that's why um, you know uh, movie theaters don't survive without uh, their concession sales. And so that's, you know, that's a big part of Dreamland, too, is, you know, every time you go into a theater and there's a good reason why theaters say no outside food or drink, it's because um, the theater really depends on those sales to uh, make ends meet, especially with a studio like Disney that kind of uh, takes back the lion's share of the revenue. I remember years ago watching Gene Siskel. So this is decades ago, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert talking about the very thing you're mentioning. And Ebert said he was astounded to find out that in many cases, theaters make more money off of food and drink mm -hmm. than they do off of what's on the screen. Yeah, and it, you know, post-COVID, um, Disney's consolidated even more and more of the industry. Um, so that, that's becoming more and more the case where you know, the profit margin for an organization like ours is less and less because um, you know, even Top Gun last year, Paramount, um, that uh, percentage, I believe, went up after they realized the success um, of the title. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's always a moving target and it's different for each movie. Um, and, uh, you know, the, they set out to produce movies that they think will make the most money. Um, but of course, that doesn't always happen. You have flops and things like that. Um, and so the rules are bent if that is um, the case. You know, we might only have to play a movie clean for one week if it's just a complete flop or something like that. But in the case of Avatar, it's now become one of the highest grossing films of all time. So um, Disney really um, was kind of holding uh, exhibitors' feet to the fire and saying, you know, you, you really need to play this as long as possible. We see it's still making as much, if not more, money than other titles on your, on your screens. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really just kind of playing their game for as long as they needed to play it. But they will, just to pick up on a minute ago, um, if something is highly anticipated and is a dud, mm -hmm. they won't necessarily hold you to the two weeks or three weeks or the... Yeah, it, it, they might set out with a two or three week, um, like letting you know there's a two or three week clean period. But like I said, if it is a complete flop, they, you know, understand that it's probably not going to make much money. And so they are more willing to let you take it off your screens early and then, you know, make it up on the next one. Um, so, for instance, we just stopped playing uh, Avatar last week um, and we have a few titles in there uh, for the next few weeks that will get us to their next release, which is the uh, new Ant-Man sequel, uh, which is a Marvel movie. And those tend to do very well. Um, and so um, that will once again probably have a four or five week uh, clean period where um, we're left to um, program the, our second screen with um, whatever we can get that will be allowed to be shared with multiple titles. Because not every movie is clean. Um, and it just, um, you know, it's kind of a balancing act of um, playing what a large number of people want to see, what will make, uh, you know, some revenue but then also balance it with um, thoughtful programming. Um, that's why we have Film for Thought, is to make sure we always have room for documentaries and art house films. Um, but, um, you know, we're playing a title, uh, Living, right now with Bill Nighy, um, who was just nominated for Academy Award, I believe, for Best Actor. And um, so we are able to split that with another title. Um, the M. Night, new M. Night Shyamalan movie is coming out um, this weekend. So those two pictures will share a screen um, for the next couple weeks. 
Let's talk about a movie that's not expected to be an Avatar or a Top Gun. If there's a movie that Hollywood thinks is going to do pretty well, but without being a blockbuster, is it the same basic rules that apply here, but on a smaller scale? They're not going to stick you with it for five or six weeks. Right. So I think right now, post-COVID, because there are, la- there are fewer titles than um, there were pre-COVID. You know what I mean? Uh, the industry shut down, essentially, for a couple of years. Um, and so we're starting to see the return of regular, um, you know, a production schedule. Um, whereas 21, 22, it was kind of few and far between. Um, I would say what still hasn't recovered from COVID is a lot of the art house films um, and then um, children's films as well. It's, we hmm. probably only get um, a PG movie probably every two, three months now or an animated title. Um, and so um, we've been playing uh, the sequel to Puss in Boots now since the week before Christmas. Um, and that's really the only thing in theaters um, that we have available to play. Um, we oftentimes will go back into the catalogs of older pictures and pick a popular, uh, it's called Repertory Film, which is a film that's not in its uh, first run in theaters. And uh, we'll put that on screen. And so like a, a Moana or something like that. Um you know, we could put that on the screen and, uh, you know, people just because kids love that movie, they'll come out, and you know, bring the family and get some popcorn and candy and enjoy it on the big screen. Well, it's a good point about COVID stopping the industry almost in its tracks. Not as many things were coming out in 2021, 2022. But if you want to go way back to when I was a kid, um, the Dreamland in the summer would have a different movie almost every single night. Right. And sometimes they would play for two nights, but never more than two nights. Right. And that would happen maybe once or twice a week. Right. So for the most part, it was a different movie every night and nothing would come back. Right. The one night was it. The two nights were it. This was true into the 1960s. And right. the reason, of course, was, or one of the reasons, there were so many more movies being made Mm-hmm. back then than there are now. Right. There was right. much more to choose from. Uh, sure. And audiences, of course, they'd go to the theater. They wouldn't sit home and watch it on TV. Right. But um, why do you suppose that is, that there are so, well, so many more were made than yeah. compared with um, today? So I'm definitely not an expert on this subject, but I know what you're talking about. Like, for instance, like Edward G. Robinson movies, like noir, you know, mm-hmm. 1940s, 50s movies, uh, gangster movies. I know they made them back to back to back to back all the time. And then they would just push them out to theaters and people would go to see each one. And so that made money for them. But in the age of, you know, I have a feeling this kind of more hardball type approach um, probably started in the early 2000s. And it's just, um, you know, as data became uh, king, um, it, that's when this sort of mentality, I think, took over. The, the movie Living, which you just mentioned. I don't think anybody anticipated that was going to be any kind of a big deal on any on any scale. Mm-hmm. But with Bill Nye getting nominated, mm-hmm. the movie that you know wouldn't necessarily have done that well, all of a sudden people want to see it. Right now, I don't know exactly when you booked that, mm-hmm. but if you had booked that at the end of last year under certain terms, mm-hmm. if you've already made that agreement, right, can they pull the rug out from under you and say? Well, now that things are looking rosy, we're going to charge you more. In other words, can they override a previous agreement? Yes. Um, So, yeah, nothing is written in stone. And certainly, 
um, we've experienced, uh, you and I have experienced with Film for Thought, um, movies that start out as art house titles and then get um, major award nominations. They are often pulled back last minute because they recognize that without those nominations, they would not make very much money at the box office. But with those nominations and a potential win, um, they could then bring it to a what's called a wide release. Um, uh, I should say that there is a uh, oftentimes a limited release um, where they only push a movie out to 500, 1,000 theaters, see how it does, and that ups their um, per-screen revenue, which is a very important um, uh, factor when studios are analyzing success of a title. So what you're saying is, in some instances, the studios would rather not have the movie in theaters at all? Mm -hmm. Or up to, a certain, <laughs> up to a certain point. So a good example is um, we were going to play uh, Women Talking, which is a, mm -hmm. a new art house picture. Um, it's very much um, speaks to the age we're in um, uh, uh, politically and, um, you know, through the Me Too movement and all sorts of the, um, the, the Supreme Court decision on abortion, things like that. Um, so it's it going to touch those key points, keystone points. And um, so, you know, going into theaters, they initially, they probably didn't expect a huge box office. It might be too dark, might be too political um, for them. And, they, and every movie ha has numerous test screenings, I would think, at this point. Um, I, I can't say that's wholesale, but certainly any major studio is doing... Um, many, many test screenings with test audiences to see how people react. And they base through data um, how they roll out a release based on that. So, but in the case of Women Talking, um, that movie started to get awards buzz. And so uh, at a certain point, they decided, well, what if we win Best Picture? Then all of a sudden we have a moneymaker on our hands. And so, and, they want to make the most money per screen as possible. And so um, if they win that award, then they'll go a wide release with that title and they'll probably do really well. So it's not in a wide release as we're speaking? No, no, it's only in, I was told um, last week that uh, Women Talking was only adding one or two screens per week. And yet, over the last week or two, I've seen tons of ads for it on right. television. Right, but that's a campaign so, for the Academy Awards. Interesting. Yes. Sort of, well, in a way, it's a stealth campaign. Because yes. you, you assume if you see an ad on TV, right. <clears throat> excuse me, that's going to the potential customer, the right. consumer. Right. But, but you're saying it's, but it's, also it's going, not as simple it's as It's also that. affecting the Academy voters um, who are seeing the same commercials mm -hmm. and maybe subliminally <laughs> being influenced mm -hmm. by that. I mean, you know, that's my guess, but yeah. Well, this reminds me of um, Glass Onion, which mm -hmm. I believe it was in selected theaters mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a week. Right. And then they took it out of the theaters, right. but they didn't start streaming it. For a month, you could not right. see that anywhere. Right. And then after the month, they, made, they decided to stream it. Right. And there was a piece in the New York Times about this, and they didn't put it like this, but I sort of had the feeling they were just throwing it up against the wall because nobody really knows how the business is working anymore. Right. Um, you they'll, know, they'll try anything to see if it works. Yeah. So I think there's a few factors going on there. It's um, Netflix doesn't necessarily know the exhibitor business that well. They're just getting into that. Mm -hmm. But um, the, and this was a Netflix movie. Yes. Yes. Um, but 
they have been getting a lot of Academy Award nominations the last couple of years, which was a new thing for them because they started to get into art house and more intellectual type titles and things like that. And so, um, but to be eligible for Academy Awards, you do have to have a play period in theaters. Does, uh, I'm not sure what the minimum um, number of screens is, but um, you do have to play it on a certain number of screens for it to be eligible. So that's that was the whole reason that uh, Glass Onion was in theaters was to get that eligibility. And, you know, great, they made some money that week, but it was really about um, getting uh, nominations. Well, there was a similar situation a few years ago with Roma, mm -hmm. because not many theaters showed it. Right. Dreamland did show it, right. I hasten to say. We right. were very lucky to get that. Right. Um, but let's stick with Art House for, for a moment. Uh, art House movies are not expected to do well. Mm -hmm. Art House movies tend not to come from Disney, Universal, Paramount, et cetera, et cetera, right. Right. the big studios. So how does that change how you get a hold of a movie like that for Dreamland? Um, well, it's, again, it's through our booker for the most part. Um, you know, the, the same person who's doing yes, stuff for Disney yes. and so on. Right. So, um, uh, for instance, Disney owns um, Fox now. And Fox's independent um, studio is called Fox Searchlight, which does all Wes Anderson movies, um, you know, a bunch of a bunch of genre type films in in, in that uh, area. And um, so, yeah, they um, they are easier to book, like I said. But for the most part, they still go through the booker. And then when you get into art house, that's when, um, and especially if you're only doing a couple screenings or one screening, they call them a one-off, which is what Film for Thought is. Yeah. And um, so at that point, I would go directly to the uh, distributor um, and the studio um, that's handling it and uh, make the booking. So uh, examples of that um, would be, say, A24, which um, you know has a lot of prestige horror titles, things like that, um, a lot of thoughtful um, indie dramas they produce. Um, and so I often deal with them um, and other really small kind of boutique um, uh, distributors who, um, you know, our booker doesn't really have time to deal with because he's booking, like I said, you know, upwards of 25 theaters. And for the most part, booking the same uh, deals across the board. As we're doing this, it's January 31st we're doing this show, and last week at Film for Thought it was The Eternal Daughter, mm -hmm. which I believe was A24. Yes. I, yes. I, yeah. yeah. Which had Tilda Swinton, a yeah. name actress. Right. She does a lot of oddball things, right. but she is a name actress. Right. So it's not as if uh, art house things are, you know, a guy with a camera in his backyard. Right. A lot of these art house films do have big names. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will end up with um, Oscar nominations right. and awards. Right. And, you know, I think that's a big um, factor in how these movies get made, get greenlit. Um, you know, the producers attached are people who have probably been very successful in the film industry or another industry. And, um, you know, they want an Academy Award nomination. That's, that's the goal, you know. And if they make money, then that's, you know, just the cherry on top. Um, but, you know, a lot of great movies, you know, didn't do well at the box office um, or did middling and, and uh, you know, didn't bring in the big dollars, but they got um, recognition in award season. A lot of what we've been talking about, um, 
I assume will still apply to documentaries. Yes. Now, documentaries are not going right. to be Top Gun or Avatar, right. but um, a lot of them will do well in the context of low budget, mm -hmm. low distribution. Right. As far as getting your hands on them, it's basically the same thing as getting, let's say, an art house. In yeah, it. so the same prop, um, process for Eternal Daughter would be the same for a documentary. Um, like this Wednesday, we're playing um, uh, Lowndes County, uh, The Rise of uh, Black Power, um, and that is a documentary. Um, and it, I booked it the same way I would book uh, the, the Eternal Daughter title um, for a one-off. And then, um, yeah, we, we make a deal. Um, rough, you know, these types of films are on that lower end of the, the percentage spectrum. So, um, you know, we end up paying 35, 40% of each dollar that comes in back to those um, distributors. And um, then, uh, yeah, we go from there. The last three summers, Dreamland had a drive-in mm -hmm. out off of um, Nobodier Farm Road. Uh, how different is that from, from, from where you sit? For, for uh, your work? Well, the drive-in is, um, it's considered not another an additional screen for us. It's considered an additional theater for us. So it, it comes with its own set of rules. Um, the way we have it set up is that, um, you know, Dreamland charges a per car um, entry fee. And we don't count how many people are in the car or anything like that. It's just whoever's in the car is, you know, can come in for, and then get a spot and watch the movie. Um, but because it's done that way, we are not allowed to play first-run um, uh, films out there uh, for the most part, uh, which means we're playing, what, like I said, repertory titles. So we try to pick um, the ones that people want to see, the ones that you know, might lend themselves to that atmosphere, you know, seeing it in you know, the great outdoors on a, on a beautiful night. Um, so you know, movies that have done well there over the last uh, three, three years have been Jaws, um, uh, Twister is, uh, funnily enough, uh, uh, the highest grossing um, uh, drive-in uh, film ever made. Um, so mm -hmm. in that, that has proven true at Dreamland as well. It, it has great attendance. Mamma Mia is another one. People come back for again and again. And then a lot of programming out there is just trying to pick uh, a variety of titles that that we think people um, will come out and see. Uh, that means a lot of family pictures because you know the kids can run around and um, there's a lot of freedom. You're not worried about you know people being quiet and things like that. It's a you know you kind of sit in your own car and put the radio as loud as you want, pay attention as much as you want, um, and um, so it is kind of a different experience for sure. Um, but um, that's the reason why it's it's all repertory or older titles. And if we were to try to play uh, first-run movies out there, it would look a lot different. It would be, uh, they would make us charge per person, mm -hmm. and we would have minimum runs just like we do at the downtown theater of, you know, roughly two weeks, three weeks, something like that, which would make it pretty difficult in a small town like Nantucket, a very isolated town, obviously, um, for, a, for that to be viable, that would be tough um, because... You know, a lot of people will come, interested people will come see it in the first week, and then the second week, third week is just left with, you know, a couple people each night. Well, a lot of those drive-in titles that do so well, mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily do well in the dreamland itself. Right, yeah. I mean, exactly. not in every case, but oh, yeah. if you, let's say it's a rainy day, right. and the drive-in can't, mm -hmm. can't show anything. Right. 
if you had a slot open, a screen open downtown, right. yeah, you may or may not want to do it, right? No, um, I mean, like my point, you know, it was I said it was funny that uh, uh, Twister is the number one um, all-time um, drive-in title, but you know, if you put that in an indoor theater, that would not be the case, of course. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, I think titles that tend to do well on the indoor are, you know. We do community screenings from time to time, and either they have a local connection or it's just kind of a, something, a movie that everyone loves on the big screen. I think Jaws maybe transcends the, the different uh, locales, um, but um, just because of you know, our connection to that film um, and Nantucket's connection to that film. Um, but yeah, it is a very different uh, can of worms, yeah. And a community screening, just to... Just extend the point um that's as far as booking things and choosing things mm -hmm. that's really its own category yeah at least for the dreamland right yeah it is mm -hmm. um as we're taping this we're about six weeks away from the oscars mm -hmm. um i guess there's really no way to guess what is going to do well at the oscars i mean you can make a well as you hate a guess but a silly guess mm -hmm. but in your future booking can you anticipate can you can you try to to suss yeah. out what's going to happen and make the appropriate bookings of of things that that might win? Yeah. So I mean, uh, the Golden Globes are a good bellwether for um, you know what might happen at the Academy Awards, and so if we are looking to title for titles to fit in before now and uh, the Academy Awards, uh, you know, we might pick a everything everywhere all at once or something like that, which is another A24 movie. But that movie was large enough that our booker handled it because he was doing it, you know, wide, uh, a wide um, hmm. scale, um, you know, placement for the title. Um, so uh, even smaller distributors like that, they do have a sliding scale of, you know, their big movies and then their small movies. And uh, I, I believe the record still holds that um, that film, every, Everything Everywhere All at Once, is A24's highest grossing movie ever. Hmm. Yeah. Now, when, you, when a movie actually arrives at Dreamland, it's on a hard drive. Yes. In the old days, and I'm not sure how far back this goes, mm -hmm. but not that far, you would get reels. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, it's a lot easier to deal with the hard drive. Right. But I'm wondering if that has any effect on anything we've talked about today. Um, yes. Yeah, so it, um, reels predate um, my uh, involvement in the industry. Um, Dreamland was rebuilt um, in, uh, well, reopened in 2012. So it was right during the changeover to all digital. And so, like you said, it comes in a probably a six by four uh, drive that has a special slot in the projector. And um, it's protected by a very long um, numbered code. And it, we are given a, a key that unlocks the drive. And uh, that's how we uh, play movies. Um, the content of those drives, it's called ingestion. Um, and so that takes several hours after we get the drive. And then at that point, we match the key with the content. And then it's available to play. Um, and so that, that was referred to at the time as digital readiness. Um, what we're experiencing now, and, and Dreamland, I believe, was one of the first, if not the first, um, theater in the country to adopt um, a fully digital um, process. So um, for a bunch of films now, including Disney films, we don't get drives anymore. It, uh, the, the content for the film is delivered securely um, via our network. 
um, in, a oh, wow. in a special box <laughs> in our server room. And uh, we, I get an email, and our, our tech director, Paul Berard, gets an email uh, when the content is ready for us to add to our um, projectors. And is there a code in there that shuts the whole thing off? That, that's a complicated question because, um, because Dreamland is an independent um, uh, theater and it was not um, built with any money from the studios, uh, we are not monitored. Um, so most movie theaters in the country um, actually have how many times the title plays, things like that. Um, when it's playing, like they can look at a system and see what's playing where anywhere in the country. But that's only if you borrowed money um, during that time, that switchover period. Um, and if you borrowed money from the studios during that time, it came with the caveat that you must that you must let us install this software that tracks everything you're doing. So um, we're we're grateful that we don't have to um, deal with that kind of. Um, micromanagement um, because uh, Dreamland was fortunate enough to raise money and the Nantucket community um, was obviously the key um, player in that in making sure that the Dreamland was uh, truly independent. Before we go, let's talk about you as Josh Gray, not as Director of Creative Programming. When did you come to Nantucket? Why? How? Etc. Um, well, I've honestly spent most of my life here. Uh, my parents moved here when I was six years old. Uh, my dad uh, worked for the post office here and was an electrician uh, for a time uh, when I was a kid. Uh, he was also a, um, a minister, a pastor. And um, so at 12 years old, we uh, moved to Maine, uh, where he uh, had a church for several years. And then uh, we lived in India. He took an interim position where we lived there for almost a year. Um, and uh, so, but uh, I think around 23, I came back here. Uh, Spent six years at the Inquirer and Mirror uh, as the editorial assistant and then a uh, staff writer doing the arts and religion. And, um, and then from there, uh, I worked with the Westmore Club as uh, their marketing director for four years. And, and I've been uh, with the Dreamland for about six and a half years now. Um, outside of that, I've um, continued to write since my days at the Inquirer and Mirror. I, uh, I'm a regular contributor to uh, um, Nantucket Magazine, uh, sometimes Nantucket Today, uh, and I was a longtime columnist for Man About Town uh, when Gene Mann was alive, and uh, I'm also a um, photographer. I'm the co-president of the Photographers Association on the island, and so uh, while uh, that is a, the lesser part of my uh, livelihood, I, I still um, try to get out there and uh, you know take the, the shots and uh, do some bookings there when I can, but it seems like less and less these days as uh, Dreamland gets busier and busier post-COVID. More full disclosure, one of your photographs is uh, right <laughs> near our front door. <laughs> I appreciate that, yes. Um, I remember when you guys purchased that. Thank you. Uh, it seems, um, I'm not seeing a through line before you got to the Dreamland. I'm seeing a lot of things you did, but what prepared yes. you to do that job? So um, I initially started at Dreamland as the marketing director. Um, Dreamland is actually where I, f I saw my first movie as a child. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, while I didn't accept the role at Dreamland um, with uh, film programming in mind, um, my conversations with the then um, executive director, Joe Hale, 
um, you know, led him to appoint me as also the film programmer, just because mm-hmm. I have a lifelong passion for film and, and music as well. And, um, and so I came in and, you know, I just started talking about film right away and, uh, he recognized that and, and put me in that role. And so, um, yeah, for the entire, um, six and a half years I've been at Dreamland, uh, essentially that entire time I've been the film programmer. And to give you a plug for, or give us a plug for film for thought, mm-hmm. um, that I believe was your idea. I believe it came about as a uh, result of a conversation between Joe and I, and that may have um, stemmed from our board of directors. I'm not uh, completely sure. But uh, yeah, it it started out, and you were involved early on, I remember. Um, uh, But in the beginning, um, before we could uh, get digital delivery for these kind of one-off movies, um, we were playing movies that had just come out the day before. And we would mm. get the Blu-ray from, uh, you know, an online retailer and um, get it and then play it that night. So it was only on video for one day. And, you know, the goal was is that we created a program that was so, like, kind of under the wire that um, people, um, we you know, people would come and then they would learn to trust our, our uh, programming acumen and... Um, realized that we were showing them pictures that really had the potential to be uh, remembered, you know what I mean, um, and nominated for these awards. And so I think uh, you'd agree with me over the years, we've seen a lot of the movies that play for, at Film for Thought uh, nominated for major awards and win major awards. Yes. Um, part of uh, the programming we do each year for Film for Thought, and that's coming right up in three weeks, is we'll have three weeks of the short film program, the animated live action and documentary um, nominees. And so we'll do uh, those each week. Um, and then the following Sunday after the last program is the awards. And then um, so a lot, we get a lot of people out for those. And uh, it's really just people wanting to be informed about what's um, nominated. And they gives them a kind of a, a, a title to root for in, in all these categories. Um, but uh, yeah. You're right. It is a thrill to be watching the Oscars and see right. film for thought titles either just getting nominated or winning, man. Right. It, it really uh, is a nice feeling to see that. Yes, yeah. And with Film for Thought, we, we sort of went over this before, but, um, well, I'll put it this way. There's less pressure to find a profit-making film mm-hmm. with Film for Thought. Yes. Just one show a week. Right. Uh, all year. Right. Um, the idea is let's show films that... Mm-hmm. Maybe there are five people in the audience, but it's a movie that people aren't going to see otherwise. Right. And for those five people, it's going to mean a hell of a lot to see yeah, that movie. Right. And, you know, um, we are a small, isolated community, as I said. And um, so, you know, it, it's different for every title. I mean, like you said, some weeks, if we have a foreign language uh, title that's, you know, subtitled for our English speakers, um, you know, that is not necessarily a big draw in January, uh, you know, each year on Nantucket. But, um, you know, there are some titles where we get a full house and mm-hmm. it really is dependent on, um, on uh, we did premiere uh, everything uh, everywhere all at once at Film for Thought and then it continued to play. Yes, it became part um, of the regular run. Yeah, because we had a great turnout. And so we, we'll often do that. If um, a Film for Thought title has a really great response, we'll try to play it three or four more times over the course of like two or three weeks. Yeah. 
Josh Gray, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much, John. I, I think the audience heard a lot of things that they would never have dreamed about. I hope but it's, so. But it is not a simple thing just to, you don't call 1-800-MOVIE and have no. a movie delivered the next day. I mean, no. it, it's, it's a negotiation. It is. I think most time. people have no idea that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for explaining it. Absolutely. For Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18, I'm Charlie Walters. Thanks for tuning in, and please tune in again.